Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where each week we tell you about strange things that have happened in history. I'm your host for this week, Barnaby King, and joining me as ever is Amelia Edwards. Hello. Hello, how are you doing? I'm alright, thank you. And you? Yeah, alright, well I've got a cough. Apparently. (coughs) Jesus. Ah, it's not Covid. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we thought that joke would have got old by now. I know, but, uh, well, we've got a long dark winter ahead of us, Mm -hmm. (laughs) full of uncertainty. Full of Covid. Indeed. So we're going to, as usual, each week, look back at... I mean, not always more pleasant times, but, you know... <laughs> times uh, when it was plague instead of COVID. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, no, not not quite that. We're going to look at, admittedly, a pretty turbulent time. Okay. Uh, in a place that is known for a lot of turbulence. Because last week you talked about when France feared the potato. Mm-hmm. And though we're going to leave the potatoes behind, we're going to stick with France. Hey, we're doing a lot of French history recently. Yeah, we are. We are. Um, So I'm going to start this off with a mystery. Not only a mystery, but a mystery on the Orient Express. Oh my God. Yes. Really? Absolutely, 100%. Oh my gosh. Okay, so I was recently reading a book, a young adult book, which is about a murder that takes place... On the Orient Express. I wouldn't really call Agatha Christie young adult fiction. This one wasn't Agatha Christie. This one was part of the Murder Most Unladylike series. Ah. And li- Murder Most Unladylike. <laughs> you stabbed him with a fish knife. <laughs> it's about two boarding school girls in like the 1930s. Please, it's boarding school gals. Gals. Um, it's, really, it's a really good series, but... The writer knew what she was doing to the extent where she set the book the year after Murder on the Orient Express was published. Oh, brilliant. And has one of the kids reading it. Yeah. So one thing I learned, which I didn't actually know, was that uh, there were multiple Orient Expresses. What? Yeah. Well, that's just alive then, isn't it? Yeah. And in fact, I believe the one in Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express is not the official Orient Express. What? However, this mystery on the Orient Express takes place on the actual Orient Express. Okay, so what was the train that's in Murder on the Orient Express? I can't remember. Okay. Is is the distinction where they go? It's where they go, yeah. There are different lines and there are different trains running on them. Oh. And there are a number that were named after the Orient Express. Okay. But were not the Orient Express. Okay, but still go to the Orient. Well, yes, presumably. (laughs) (laughs) Is it going east? Yes. Right, I know what to call it. (laughs) This one is the original Orient Express. Okay. This is May 23rd, 1920. Mm -hmm. And... uh, French President Paul Deschanel is travelling with his retinue. There's about eight or nine coaches of them. Mm -hmm. And they are going to Loire. They've got some work going on there. And they decided to take the Orient Express, perhaps to travel in luxury. I think the original Orient Express was a bit less, you know luxurious yeah okay um so it might just have been that it was the most efficient route Mm -hmm. but anyway may 23rd it gets to about 10 p.m at night and the president takes a sleeping pill he wants to be ready for the next morning sure he tells his secretary not to wake him before seven okay he goes into his compartment and goes to sleep Mm -hmm. the next morning at five past seven his door is opened by his secretary to find the president has vanished. 
The present vanishes. Indeed. Amazing. Okay. And this is our mystery on the Orient Express, and we will solve it later because we are going to go back now because we are talking about the French president Paul Deschanel mm-hmm. who is an interesting figure and one who is surprisingly hard to research any relation to Zoe Deschanel uh no no he was the son of Emile Deschanel who was um a writer politician and uh enemy of napoleon the third oh nice the first president of france mm-hmm. uh, emile had actually been exiled okay. by napoleon the third because he wrote a book called catholicism and socialism mm-hmm. in which he I, I couldn't get a copy of it but i believe that he basically spoke out in opposition to the French president, the first president, Napoleon III. Sure, okay. And as such, he was exiled and was living in Brussels. Mm. And uh, Paul Deschanel was born in 1855. And because he was born in Brussels, he is one of only two French heads of state who were born outside of France. Oh, okay. Yeah. Who was the other one? The other one was uh, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing. Sure. I, I'm not entirely sure that pronunciation is right because <laughs> French is really difficult to pronounce. Um, but yeah, that was around the uh, 1970s, I think. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So, Paul was born. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, because as I said, he's a hard person to research, he and his family go back to France. I don't okay. know if Emile apologized to Napoleon <laughs> or if this was like Napoleon forgot about it. <laughs> I don't know. It seems impossible to find out an answer to this. Not even like a speculative answer. Napoleon's just like, oh, hey, that Emile's a really nice guy. Great to hang out with. Don't remember why I exiled him now. That kind of been important then. I thought it was going to be, oh, Emile, I really miss him. Whatever happened to him? <laughs> you exiled him, sir. Did I? I don't think I did. That doesn't sound like me. Bring him back wherever he <laughs> yeah. is. But either way, they go back to Paris Mm -hmm. and uh, the young Paul Deschanel gets a very good education at some very fine schools. Nice. Um, He starts specialising in uh, law, literature, philosophy. He actually gets a degree in the arts. Oh, cool. Yes. Uh, Unfortunately, his education is put on hold in 1870 to 71 because the family has to flee Paris for several months because it's under siege. Oh, right. Okay. Because of the Franco-Prussian War. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Although for a second there, I was like, what, again? <laughs> yeah, I mean, kind of. And Neil wrote another book. <laughs> <laughs> Dad, why would you do this? I mean, to be fair, Emile and his son both wrote a lot, so... Okay. It wouldn't be entirely surprising. But no, <laughs> this time they had to leave because of reasons completely unrelated to politics. Sure. Okay. Franco-Prussian War. Whoop. Indeed. So the uh, family eventually come back mm-hmm. after, you know, the siege is lifted. Yeah. Um, but Paul's education is interrupted once again as he has to go in for military service. Okay. So a, I didn't know that was a thing. Apparently it was a thing at the time. Oh. Yeah. Cool. Sure. So it was by 1873 that he finished his military service mm-hmm. and actually could get back to his education. <laughs> At which point he's like, 
dad if you write something i swear <laughs> to god my well, education's been interrupted twice and i need to do my own book <laughs> i mean yes especially because uh he's studying law at this point and he does plan to go into politics so it would be good if he wasn't exiled yeah that would be useful yeah. i mean brussels is probably a good place now if you want to go into politics but mm. not in the 1870s i'm assuming no well no especially if you want to create change in france yeah brussels is not the great place to do it from no. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets his degree in 1875 and he basically then goes to work kind of as a civil servant okay he's a secretary to uh, a couple of different people in important positions nice but paul deschanel is not only a very clever person very good at his job he is a great orator as well okay and it's pretty soon afterwards that he actually gets elected as a deputy in the uh, Chamber of Deputies, which was the French Parliament at the time. Okay. So he was basically an MP. Right. Um, because, yeah, like, deputy is just the term used at the time. This is the Third Republic. Okay. Um, France has a lot of history of changing the names of things at various different Yeah, points. I mean, didn't they change the names of the months and try to make them, like, metric or something? Yeah, I believe they did under the... Um, like, original Napoleon or something. The, the, it was the First Republic, wasn't yeah. it? It was after the Revolution. Yeah, and they were like, we don't like how this is all named after Roman stuff. Let's name it after... Fruit. <laughs> and Was it fruit? It's like, it's a combination of different agricultural things. Oh, wow. And, um, and I think mechanic things as well, because they want to recognize the laborers. Like, it's wild. And then each week has a different name as well. Yeah. It's, yeah, I tried to get my head around it once and it, it's really interesting, but at the same time, mad. Yeah, it sounds bizarre. It did not work because no. it was confusing. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I mean, it, it was hard enough to get this country to get onto the metric system for its mm. money. I get the idea of calling your, like, MP your a deputy, though. Yeah. Like, they've been deputised to, uh, like, create votes and stuff. Like, yeah. to vote on people's behalf. So that yeah. makes sense. So it was 1885 when he was elected deputy. Okay. And uh, he was, at this point, part of the Progressist Republican Group. Oh, my God. Yeah, um, okay. which is so bizarre. So looking it up, the progressist Republican group seemed to be, as far as like the political spectrum goes, they were centre-left. Okay. But he spoke, he spoke out a lot against the left. Right. And... I mean, he, don't our centre-left too? Hey. I mean, this is true. Yeah. Uh, one of his main political opponents, a man we're going to meet in a sec, uh, was part of a group called the Radical Socialists, who were apparently centre-right. Of course they were! <laughs> so, I don't know, France, what the hell, man? What the hell was the naming of your parties? Like, at least we just had Tories and Whigs. Like, <laughs> I mean... Okay, in the 1870s, had socialism been invented yet? When was Marx? Actually, that's a good point. So maybe socialism means something different. It could very well be. Like, I hadn't actually thought of that. As in society or something. I'm going to quickly look up when Marx was born. Uh, 1818, died 1883. So... He would have come up with socialism then. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know then. That's just bizarre. All right, fine. 
Well, okay. Excuse me for trying to be <laughs> reasonable for a second and give excuses I for I mean, us. it's absolutely fair enough because it's mad. But mm. we'll stick for the moment with this gentleman who's in the badly named Radical Socialists. Yep. Um, you might recognise his name. He is Georges Clemenceau. Oh, I know Georges Clemenceau. Yes. He later became le président de France. Yes, indeed, during the First World War. Yeah. And he earned the nickname the Father of Victory and also Le Tigre. Yeah, I knew he was the tiger. Le Tigre. And then he was really severe on Germany in he terms of reparations. He was really severe. And to be honest, from what I read about him, a bit of a dick. I mean, probably. Weren't all our leaders <laughs> in World War One kind mean, of dicks? Kind of, but the thing is that he was a dick and... We'll get to that in okay, a sec. Okay, okay, we'll get okay, to okay. that in a sec. But, but we've got Georges Clemenceau, who is a radical socialist, who does not believe in socialism or radicalism, I'm assuming. If... No, he doesn't, actually. So... Uh, he actually, during his time, um, doesn't like the fact that the party starts going further towards the right. He seems very much a centre-right. Okay. Um... So, so we... <laughs> I, I told you it's weird! I got hung up for so long researching this because of the term deputies. Because I was like, what's a deputy? And yeah. I, like, I looked up the chamber of deputies and everything like that. And then it got <laughs> onto this and it was like, oh God, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely fair. Like, okay, I guess this is the thing. Whatever's happening with names of parties, you can't assume that the name of the party represents what the party actually is. She has a very good like, point. Look at the National Socialists. Exactly, exactly what I was going to say, yeah. because people always do the whole, oh, well, Hitler was actually a socialist because it was called National Socialists. And it's like, no, though it wasn't. Like, yeah. They weren't socialists. It's like the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Yes. Or of Congo. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Democracy does not really exist in either of them. No, no. Um, so... In 1894, Paul Deschanel and Georges Clemenceau get into an argument because Paul Deschanel accuses Georges Clemenceau of being corrupt. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Why? Uh, I don't know. Okay. I mean, like, if you're going to accuse a politician of anything, corrupt's a good one because you're likely right. I mean, this is true, but because we are in the late 19th century... This means a duel is to be had. Oh my god! Yay! Absolutely, I forgot that we weren't at World War One yet, and no. people still did duels. Yep, amazing. Okay, so and do they do the ten duel command? Why is this so much like Hamilton so far? Like we got these people, they're writing all the time, <laughs> and then they're like, "Let's challenge you to a duel." Well, it's not quite like Hamilton because they didn't use guns; they used swords. That's because it's France, exactly. And France loves duels. We've already talked about topless fencing French women. That's true. Yes. Um, it wasn't France that had the husband and wife dueling, was it? No, that was Germany. That was Germany, yes. I should remember, I did that episode. But France had like four or five different occasions of women dueling mm. over men or honour. That was the France versus America medical system in the 1800s one as well. That's amazing. I I, I think I... I've, I did mention it very briefly. Yeah. But yeah, there was one where I think it was two female doctors oh, or something yes. similar. And they had a duel over the honour of the French medical system versus the American medical system. Yeah. And look how it turned out. Um, so back to this duel. It seems that for a duel, it was kind of tame. 
Aww. Like, no blood was spilled. No Rain. one was really hurt. No one was even cut on the nose. No. Oh. It seems that, like, they just kind of fought a bit and then Got George those. Clemenceau was declared the winner. Oh, okay. So, Paul Deschanel, he was defeated, but, you know, he didn't let this stop him in any way whatsoever. Uh, he continued his work. He kept making some very apparently fabulous speeches now the thing is they're all in french no i can't find them (laughs) okay i can't find them every time i try and find like a transcript of the speech all i get back is the same bit of information which is lifted from i think the 11th version of the encyclopedia britannica yeah which just says his address is at marseille on the 26th of october 1896 at carmo on 27th of december 1896 and rubai on the 10th of april 1897 were triumphs of clear and eloquent exposition of the political and social aims of the progressist party i have absolutely no idea what these speeches were like Mm -hmm. how clear and eloquent they were i couldn't possibly tell you because i cannot (laughs) find a transcript or anything this man is so difficult to research and it was so annoying but i really wanted to do the story because of what comes later namely him vanishing yes uh, are you sure he didn't just like skip out to go to the loo or something Oh, we we know what happened to him. Okay. I'll I'll, I'll let you know that now. We know exactly what happened to him. Okay. Sure. Okay, so he's doing well. He's making apparently amazing speeches, but it could just be that the the Encyclopedia Britannica really likes him. It could very well be, because that exact thing appears on Wikipedia, Mm -hmm. um, a couple of other places, like I think it was biography.com. Yeah, they all copy-paste. Yeah. They're so lazy. But I I tried hard to find another speech, and I couldn't, not even in French. I thought, you know, I could find it in French and then just Google Translate and sort of get the gist, but no, nothing. Okay. So if you have a copy of a transcript of a speech by Paul Deschanel get in touch because I would really like to know how clear and eloquent they were (laughs) you read them you're like this is hot garbage (laughs) that's why they're not on there it's what Google doesn't want you to know absolutely Um, he stuck pretty firmly to his beliefs he seemed like it seemed like he really did get into politics because he had a strong moral code Mm. and he believed that you know it should be reflected in the nation like in 1904 and 5 he was a pretty vocal part of the uh, movement of the separation of church and state in france okay which he believed was very important um he because of his ability he became the president of the committee of foreign affairs and this was actually during a really turbulent time because this was during the agadir crisis right which went from april to november 1911 now, do you know what the Agadir crisis is? No. So I'm not going to go into it entirely because it's surprisingly complicated. Okay. But essentially, uh, France was having some trouble because they they had a hold of Morocco. Right, yes. A revolution was happening and was kind of, they, be, they were trying to put it down. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Germany, which was having a bit of argument with France because of Basically, they were each claiming territories in Africa and wanted Mm -hmm. their trade routes protected. Um, Germany sent a gunboat outside of Agadir. Right, okay. So this led to some very tense months Mm -hmm. and it looked like France and Germany were going to go to war. Right. But Paul Deschanel, as president of the Committee of Foreign Affairs... Uh, put together the Franco-German Treaty of 1911, Mm -hmm. which means that the crisis never escalated. Okay. 
So it worked out quite well, really. Like, he seems competent at his job. Yeah, he's that sounds good. moral. He's I mean, he clever. stopped World War One from happening three years early. So exactly. that's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, which can only be a good thing, yeah. considering how awful World War One was. And speaking of World War One, he did play an important role in that as well. Okay. Because at this point, he was the leader or the president of the Chamber of Deputies. Okay, kind of like right. leader of the house. Okay, sure, yeah. Um, and he would basically become the national orator during World War One. Ooh. And he would uh, basically impart all the information that the government was giving people. Right, So okay. he was kind of a figurehead during World War One. Yeah, so he's like the spokesperson for the government. Yeah, absolutely. Like, obviously, people know that Georges Clemenceau is, at this point, prime minister. Yeah. Because they've gone out of presidents for the moment, mm-hmm. and they're going to go back to it later on. Sure. <laughs> you do you, France. Exactly. <laughs> um, but he, as I said, also is quite popular. So come 1920... And the new election cycle, the newly formed Republican Party, of which both Paul Deschanel and George Clemenceau are members, they decide to both go forward for the role. Okay. uh, For the, basically, head of the party to be the candidate. So they have their sort of preliminary vote at the Republican caucus, Mm -hmm. but George Clemenceau refuses to campaign. What? He still put himself forward, albeit because a friend basically said, hey, you really need to put yourself forward for this. Okay. But he says he's not going to campaign because he wants to be elected based on being a an acclaimed figure. Like, right. he, wants, he wants his reputation to speak for itself. Okay. I mean... <sighs> I mean, he has got a reputation, he sure. He does. But also, this is really lazy, for it, God's yeah. sake, Clemenceau. Absolutely. Like, yes, obviously, but also, we shouldn't be voting for personalities. We should be voting for um, principles. Well, he doesn't just want to be known as a personality. He wants to be recognised as a national symbol for wow. everything he did in World War One. Oh my God, calm down. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, that's really full of himself. I'm sorry, Clemenceau. Oh no, he is full of himself and petty. Great, yeah. As we will find out right now. Yay. Because the votes are in, yep. and Deschanel is chosen to go ahead. Because <laughs> they're like, we've seen Deschanel recently. We're not sure <laughs> if Clemenceau is actually around or if he's in a box somewhere. Well, I mean, Clemenceau could have won it because the vote was surprisingly slim. Mm. Uh, Deschanel won with 408 votes to Clemenceau's 389. Okay. So it was pretty close. And yeah. they could still have both gone ahead to the kind of next round of voting. Yeah. But Clemenceau refuses to be put forward. Right. Because he basically says he doesn't want to win by a small majority. He wants a near unanimous vote. Well, you should have bloody <laughs> campaigned then, you pillock, shouldn't this, you? This is what I mean about him being full of himself and petty. It's kind of like, you should vote for me because I'm amazing. And then they don't really vote for him. And it's like, well, you could still go ahead. And it's like, well, no, if you're not going to vote for me, then fine. He actually... (laughs) So rude. (laughs) uh, His last speech to the cabinet on the 18th of January, he (laughs) he said, we must show the world the extent of our victory and we must take up the mentality and habits of a victorious people, which once more takes its place at the head of Europe. But all that will now be placed in jeopardy. 
It will take less time and less thought to destroy the edifice so patiently and painfully erected than it took to complete it. Poor France. The mistakes have begun already. Oh my god. Man, <laughs> your whole country is in shambles yeah, right, right now. Like, it's literally war-torn. Like, you need to get the fields planted. Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> this is not the time. He's such a petty man. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. I love it when you find out actual things about people. It's like when you find out stuff about Winston Churchill and you're like, oh, he wasn't a very nice man, was he? Like, for various reasons. Yeah. But you're kind of like, actually, that's that's kind of nice because when we set up these heroic figures, like, of the past, who yeah. have to be war prime ministers or whatever, Yeah, I think... There is a kind of tendency to be like, oh, yes, these were great people and we don't have great people anymore. And then you're like, nah, like Boris Johnson could totally have been prime minister during World War II. I mean, he could. He wouldn't have done a good job. No, yeah. (laughs) Well, anyway, Deschanel goes on to win the bid. He becomes the candidate and actually gets uh, voted in as president by an overwhelming majority. Because there was no other candidate. Well, no, there were, <laughs> there were candidates from other parties. Oh, right, right, right. But he was a recognised political figure. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of clout. He mm-hmm. was apparently good at speeches, but we don't know. <laughs> um, I'm still better about that. No, that's uh, <laughs> fair. I've just got this image of Paul Deschanel actually being like um, the hypnotoad or something. Yes. Like, oh my God, yeah. That's what he does. He does these speeches and you think they're incredible but actually all he's doing is sitting like in front of the radio with his eyes spinning like (laughs) (laughs) Mesdames et Messieurs Thank you Ah! Ah, Amazing (laughs) Best speech ever (laughs) So he was really ambitious he had a lot of changes he wanted to make and he wanted to be a really hands-on president, which during the Third Republic, they weren't really. Okay. Um, so he wanted to, like, go away from the politics of his childhood and really, like, put himself out there. Sure. Unfortunately, he wasn't going to be able to enact pr- pretty much any of his plans. Because he disappeared on a train? Well, his presidency only lasted from 18th of February, 1920, to the 21st of September. 1920. Oh, damn. Yeah. And this is because Paul Deschanel, unfortunately, had mental health problems. Oh, okay. Now, this is one of the things where, because he's a figure who we don't seem to have a great deal of, like, clear information about his earlier life. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this was something that started early and, like, I don't know, the stress of the job or something. Yeah. Or maybe just, like years of it piling up from being stressed and having to deal with lots of difficult things because it just seems like he just snaps okay or it could just be that you know he was a great orator but if you're around him all the time you're like oh no he's mad Hmm. how old was he when this happened uh he would be 65 okay so a little early for dementia Mm. not entirely impossible could be other things going on there yeah But yeah, he was um, known to behave in some very strange ways. Okay. And this included um, once in a public event, uh, a group of schoolgirls went forward and gave him a bouquet of flowers. Okay. He took the bouquet, he unwrapped it, and one by one, he took the flowers out and threw them at the girls. 
and this was not giving them back to them. Yeah. He yeeted them at them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that would be upsetting. It would be upsetting and like, okay, that's weird. He gave us. That's just reminding me of that gift. There's a gift that's around where, like, some little girl gives the queen a present, and I think it is a bouquet, a bouquet of flowers or something. Yeah. And then she, the queen, thanks her and turns back around, and the guard who's next to the girl salutes and knocks her out. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, I've seen that. That's fantastic. Ah, oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, it would be like that, but intentional. Yeah. <laughs> just chins the girl um he was uh giving a speech in nice and because it's a paul deschanel speech the crowd goes wild yeah. they love it there's applause because paul People deschanel are- was like mesdames et messieurs yeah exactly exactly <laughs> but the thing is that because they were really happy with his speech he's like oh, they must want more okay so he goes back and delivers the exact same speech, word for word, a second time. What? Yeah. Oh my god. No one wants the same speech twice. No, absolutely not. Oh, this puts paid to the idea that it's the Hypnotoad, though. I mean, kind of, yeah. Unless, <laughs> unless like, Hypnotoad is one preconceived speech? I don't know. I don't know. Um, he was speaking to the French Parliament, and once he had finished speaking, he apparently left and walked into a lake fully clothed. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, this happened on more than one occasion. Maybe he was just warm. He could be. Uh, He was also known to go into parks and just randomly start climbing trees, which, again, could just be for fun, I suppose. But when you're the president of France, you probably, and a 65-year-old man, you probably have to project a different sort of aura. I would, I suppose so. I kind of like, like, this is, on the whole, this seems to be that nice kind of madness that you don't really see around anymore. Yeah, he he never really seems to harm people. Like, Mm. the worst thing, I guess you could say, is uh, actually a story that is kind of unsubstantiated. We don't really have any evidence of it. Okay. But there is a story told that he received the British ambassador, who was making a formal uh, visit, Mm -hmm. and Deschanel received him naked, except for the French sash of office. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I don't think that's true. Or at least... Surely someone would have stopped him. I mean, you'd think so, wouldn't you? It's not like... It's not like walking into a lake. It's like he's got secretaries and people around him. Yeah, exactly. They're going to stop him from receiving... (laughs) The British ambassador. (laughs) The British ambassador just wearing the sash of honour. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So now we'll go back to the train journey because even though it only really happened halfway through his presidency... It seems that most people kind of reckon that the train journey is what kind of sunk him. Okay. Because when I say they opened the door and he was missing, the window was wide open. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. Now, the night before, a plate layer uh, by the name of André Radeau Mm -hmm. was inspecting some newly relayed track... And he encountered a man. Right. Barefoot, dressed in elegant embroidered pyjamas. Mm-hmm. He was bruised with swelling on his face and he was bleeding. Okay. And the man said, I am the president of France. Okay. 
Now, Andre immediately thinks that he's either drunk or mad. Okay, sure, because, like, that would be insane. (laughs) Yeah, especially, like, this bloodied, beaten man has just come out of the darkness into your lantern light, and the first thing he says is, I am the president of France. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a brilliant beginning to, like, some kind of action movie. I mean, yeah, that, right? yeah, I could see that. I am the president of France. You are the only one who can know the truth. <laughs> well, no, he definitely wants people to know. Okay. Because Andre takes uh, Paul Deschanel to the uh, level crossing guard. Right. Because they have a house nearby. Okay. Uh, Gustav Dario and his wife. Mm-hmm. And... They he's like, believe. I've met this madman. <laughs> well, exactly. And they don't believe that he's a president of France either. So okay. they put him in bed. Okay. And I, I of, like these people. Yeah, they just sort of let him sleep it off. And okay. next morning they call for a doctor. Yeah. And the doctor's like, well, I can see what's wrong with this guy. He's the president of France. And they're like, oh, shit, son. Yeah, exactly. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh. The doctor comes over. He cleans him up. The swelling's gone down a bit. And he's like, holy shit, this is Paul Deschanel, president <laughs> of France. <laughs> So they're like, we just thought he was mad. I was like, well, that too. They did think he was a gentleman because Madame Dario later told the press, I could tell he was a gentleman. He had clean feet. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that says so much about poverty at the time, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. So uh, at this point, when he was identified by the doctor, it was 6.30am. Okay. So the, the, on the train, they hadn't actually discovered he was missing yet. Right. They eventually, like, both stories came together and he was only technically missing for about an hour and a half. Okay. What had happened was he had taken his sleeping tablet. Right. And then had decided he was too hot. So he opened the window and leaned out. Okay. But because he still felt too hot, he leant out further. Right. And did that until he fell out of the train. Oh my God. Now, fortunately, the train was only traveling at about 30 kilometers an hour. Okay. And he did land in some freshly raked sand (laughs) and probably rolled a bit, but, you know, could have been a lot worse. I think this puts, this lends credence to my theory that he's just a warm person. That's why he's walking into the lake. It could very well be, actually. He's just a warm person who doesn't think about it. <laughs> Unfortunately, the press don't really share your sympathies and they mock him relentlessly for Aww. this. And the fact that, like, there are all these stories about him being mad, it goes downhill. And by September, he steps down as president and is actually institutionalized for three months. Wow. Okay. Yeah. He goes into an asylum. And he comes out, and in January 1921, he's re-elected as senator. Amazing! <laughs> it seems that France didn't care that he was, you know, technically a madman. Well, he went He went to the sanatorium, Absolutely. he got cured. Um, we don't seem to know much about what he did as a senator, because this was the role that he held until his death in 1922. Okay. Um, it seems that he was probably competent you know might have given some good speeches we don't really seem to know what he did um but he was still popular clearly because right out of the asylum he was right back in office elected by the people that's lovely it is lovely 
So come 1922, unfortunately, he comes down with a bout of pleurisy, which is one of those diseases you don't really hear about anymore. No, what is pleurisy? Pleurisy is an inflammation of the lining of the lung. Basically, you've got your lungs have a uh, thin layer between Mm -hmm. them and the chest cavity, which has like fluid in it. Yeah. And pleurisy, though that lining swells. Ah. So it's severe chest pains. He was finding it difficult to breathe. And eventually he died from it. Right. Oh, God, that's horrible. It is horrible. But he does have a really good legacy, not only for falling out of train, Mm -hmm. but one thing which just goes back to him being this very moral person. He was a huge opponent of the death penalty. Okay. And until it was abolished in 1981 in France, he was the only French head of state under whom no one was executed. Wow. And this is, like, you might think, you know, well, he was only in office for about seven months. Sure. But there were those who had shorter terms and still managed to execute people. Mm. He was the only one who never executed anyone. So that's Paul Deschanel, a pretty weird but pretty cool guy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of, he's the sort of person you feel is missing from politics at the moment. I wouldn't mind an obvious madman who was like <laughs> just harmlessly mad. Yeah. Like at least they're not going to run the country into the ground. And... Like so harmlessly mad that he doesn't execute anyone, yeah. even though he could. Imagine yeah. if we had the power to execute with our government. There are actually some conservative MPs who are try- who want to get the death penalty back. <sighs> Bring back Paul Deschanel, that's what I say. <laughs> and thank you for listening to That Time When. You can follow us on Twitter at That Time When 4, and you can suggest any episodes to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. Thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any other music that Barnaby's used in the pod. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and walk into a lake. Bye!